You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with Skylar. And uh, here we go. <laughs> Oh, what you looking for over there? My notes. Oh, you need those? I, <laughs> yeah. I was just making fun of how, so Skylar handwrites all of his notes. I do. Just, just so that you can visualize what's going on here. So if you ever hear papers turning while Skylar's talking, that is his handwritten notes, which uh, apparently he's lost some of right now. Yeah. So hold down the fort. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I need to look up some dad jokes or something like that because I don't have any good ones on hand. But anyway. They'll show up. They'll show up. (laughs) Shooting from the hip today. Shooting from the hip today. Kind of need them. All right. Okay. I guess we're ready now. Don't worry. Here we go. Oh, man. What's the most exciting thing that happened in your week? My week? Yeah. Well, I've been uh, going down the, what, rabbit trail of Eastern Orthodoxy, prepping for... In the sense of you're turning Eastern Orthodox, is that what you're saying? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, However, I'm going to do an interview about it. Yeah. At least a few angles that think will be interesting yep um so that's for the podcast bonus, yes. bonus episode bonus episode so yeah we've got um an interview in fact two interviews right we've yeah, got, yeah we, <laughs> our brother john cower from a long time, a long ago, time ago that i need to get ready and get up i just ugh, i it, keep forgetting been, it you were point. one of the busiest people i know well Trying to scale back on how much I'm doing right now, too. So right. That's what makes it even harder. <laughs> it's like, but, yeah, so we got John Cower coming, and then, yeah, my pastor, Jason Wallace, who um, released a documentary uh, responding to the East and um, has been getting some attention. And anyway, I'd love to draw out additional research that isn't in the video yep. that might relate to Mormon studies here and there. Yeah. So that's the goal. there are a lot of people around here who leave Mormonism and gravitate towards Eastern Orthodoxy. And I think in some ways it's because they see it as a pendulum swing to something that is rooted historically, but at the same time, (laughs) yeah, at the same time, there's so much similarity between the two that it's not as far of a jump as uh, you might think that it would be. That we would hope. Um, And it is interesting, this weird bias to treat the scriptures as if it's not older than church tradition. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So if it's something taught clearly in the scriptures, such as justification by grace alone, you'd think that those who hold to the, you know, unchanging apostolic tradition would be more clear on that let alone have literally their some of their priests and scholars mocking the West mm-hmm. for being too legalistic and caring about sin. Yeah. Caring about sin. Yeah, we care about it's sin. actually finding about finding the true self and mm-hmm. about suffering and, you know, mingle Jordan Peterson and Carl Jung and whatever else. You know, not trying to paint with too broad a brush, but it's pretty concerning yeah. to hear a priest that supposedly can make Christ present in the Eucharist belittle sin. Yeah. And the substitutionary atonement, but that's where we're at. Yeah. There you go. So look forward to that. Um, 
here hearing more from that perspective and some of the crossovers between Mormonism as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, theosis. Yeah. We'll cover it. Jason puts a lot of work into those videos. <laughs> yeah. Deeply researched and yeah, so we'd recommend go check go check out the video too. It might be helpful. It's, uh, you can find it on YouTube at Ancient Paths TV, mm-hmm. I believe is what it is. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, taken off definitely relative to his other videos. Yeah. In uh, three weeks' time, there's been uh, many thousands of views. So <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And lots of comments and oh, conversation yeah. going on. As anathema, a anathema. Yeah, Jason's been anathema quite a bit the last yep. few weeks. Yep. The Eastern Orthodox folks have found him. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, something going on with that YouTube algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. Something hit right. <laughs> anyway. Well, okay. Cool. What about you? Uh, I fi- finished the coffee bar. So I, well, I say that it's not ready for party yet okay. because I've got a, I've got a couple decorations still coming in, but right. the bulk of it is done. And so that's nice. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Nothing crazy. Well, we got to keep the listeners in the loop on our plans. Yeah. You know, yeah. So when I, you know, for the first time come to your place. That's right. That's right. <laughs> for a coffee party. We got to let what, the listeners know. I'm sure they're just gonna dying do. to know when you, I come you, over. You, they've got to know. Yeah. They want to know. <laughs> That is sad that you've never been over to my house. Yeah, what's going Something's on? Something's wrong with that. Yeah. That's my bad. Oh, but probably mine too. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been to your house either, so. That's yeah. true. Well, you dropped me off once. That's true. Christmas Eve. I've seen the outside of it. Christmas Eve. Yep. <laughs> but I've never seen your stacks on stacks of oh, books. Goodness. So. Oh, it's an addiction. Yeah. It's for real. I've shown you my books. You haven't shown me your books. What's up with that? It just seems. We're even then? Is yeah. That- unfair yeah well i mean you've seen my, me my office is like in. an extension of my house so you've yeah. seen you've seen part of it yes Let's say that it's beautiful seriously your office is so beautiful i love it come on visitors come come see my office yes <laughs> let's have a conversation i've got a couch and some chairs yes we can sit down and we can talk so just send me a time and place or no just a time we got a place yeah <laughs> all right <laughs> Let's get into it. Let's do it. So we are looking at 1 Corinthians 8 to 13. Ye are the body of Christ is the subtitle in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum. This is a curriculum that they'll be looking at from August 28th to September 3rd of 2023. And we're going to just walk through the curriculum making some comments and observations on each section as we go, any that we feel like we need to. And uh, there'll be more, I'm sure, things to say on some of these and less on others. But they say that they're covering 1 Corinthians 8 to 13, and they don't really cover chapter 8 at all. And no. and chapter 8 Shame. is a key chapter and text for seeing the Trinity and yes. uh, monotheism and uh, the, the unity uh, three-in-one sort of stuff going on. And so we're going to talk about that towards the end, just to cover the things that they didn't cover, because it is significant to notice the things that they've skipped over. And I didn't look through all of the seminary and everything this week, but I'm assuming you pick through that and there's no coverage of chapter eight in anything. Zero. Yeah. So uh, we do have some things to say on chapter eight from some other scholars who have had to deal with it in their different works. And yeah. so there's some things to note there. Yes. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that because it's just 
interesting that they would skip it over completely. Really weird. Yep. So um, here we go. Uh, We've got the section at the very top that is some instruction to the uh, teacher, of course. And I think this one is noteworthy. They say, Elder Richard G. Scott taught that we, quote, can leave the most precious personal direction of the Spirit unheard, end quote. If we do not record and respond to, open the quote again, the first promptings that come to us, close the quote. It's just interesting that, I mean, again, promptings, promptings, but there is zero encouragement to test the spirits. No. It's uh, it's just take the first prompting you get and trust that. And that's gods, the gods. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're doing very... Very, uh, very much damage to yeah. your spiritual life if you're not being sensitive to the very first promptings that come to you. Yep. And of course, the Apostle John would tell us in First John chapter four, test the spirits to see right. whether or not they are from God, because there's many spirits in the world, and uh, you need to test whether or not they are from Him. And how do you test whether or not they're from Him? Well, John goes on to say in First John chapter four, you test it according to the words that they have given to you. You test it according to the words of the apostles and according to the scriptures. That's how you test the spirits. And so if any prompting is leading you away from the revealed truth in the scripture, uh, which is rightly interpreted according to the apostles' intended meaning, then then you shouldn't trust that spirit. And so it's unwise to take the first prompting that comes to you without subjecting that to the truth of Scripture primarily as your final authority. And also, if you're going to claim that you now affirm or affirm in some way a fall of man, where does it, where does that truth inform views like this? Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful, right? Above all things, who can know it, yep. right? Um so the biblical truth is not to just trust your feelings That's and not right. just trust your th- own thoughts and not to just go off on your own and be clever. And yet, I mean, so yeah, not testing the spirits, not testing yourselves either. I mean, mm-hmm. it, so to affirm the fall and never have it inform how you interact with any sort of spirituality, yeah. I think is kind of weird yep and that's significant because much of what it's significant for this lesson in particular because much of what the apostle paul is dealing with in the letter to the corinthians is a church that is not rightly discerning the the uh, subjective kind of spiritual experiences and how they yeah. ought to be guarding those things according to the truth not they're a, just yeah, kind of willy-nilly you know t- take the first impression that comes to you and run with that and that's in alignment with their pagan way of living. And so Paul's actually trying to re, uh, re- rework that according to the truth and show them you got to leave that behind. And here's the right way to deal uh, with uh, spiritual practices yep. according to the truth of, of God's word, according to the truth of the gospel, according to the truth of who God is yeah. and his Trinitarian nature. Yeah, and what does he say? Don't depart from what is written. Yep. Yeah. So, so again, we, we know there are spirits at work in the world, and that's mm-hmm. the whole point is you need to be able to test what the whether that spirit is from God or not, and uh, you know I've I've heard some people LDS people even say when I've asked them that question, you know, how do you discern whether or not the spirit is from God or from a demon? And it's just kind of like, well, how how you don't think you could discern that? Like, how could you not discern that? Of course, yeah. you can discern whether or not a spirit is from God or from 
from Satan. I'm like, okay, but how? And they're like, well, you know, it's so it's they don't really know how to do this um, because they just think if it feels good, then it must be from God. Yeah, um, and if it's, I guess, in accordance with their prophet and standard works, right? Generally speaking, it's almost as if they imagine each of themselves um, as an Adam and Eve without a fall. Yeah. You know, yep. <laughs> no fall for themselves, no fall collectively, just, you know. Yep. Okay. So we get into the invite sharing section and it says in first Corinthians eight to 13, Paul taught gospel truths. That's an interesting phrase. Gospel yeah. truths using metaphors such as now here, here, watch how they relate immediately to what the gospel truths are that Paul taught. Apparently the metaphors that he used to teach gospel truths were a runner in a race, the human body, and a tinkling symbol. <laughs> it says, you might ask class members what they learned from these comparisons. How do these comparisons help us understand gospel truths? I would challenge listeners to go look up where maybe even just the phrase, the truth of the gospel is used by Paul and look at the context of what the truth of the gospel is when Paul uses that particular phrase. And what you're going to find is the truth of the gospel, which if you listen to our podcast, you can't have missed this by now. The truth of the gospel is objectively what Jesus has done. It's not what we do. These things, like a runner in a race, are the implications of the gospel, the, 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 but the reality of the gospel, the substance of the gospel, is not what we do as like a runner in a race. It's what Jesus has done. And then when Jesus indwells us and our lives are changed, then we do run the race um, that, that is set before us. But it, it's just, once again, a convoluting of what the gospel is by making the gospel into what we do versus what Paul actually clearly does say the gospel is, which right. is what Jesus has done. Mm -hmm. And building on what Isaiah said, right? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, mm -hmm. right? It It's not... The, the news isn't, hey, you're in the battle. Yeah. The news is the battle's been fought and won by another. Yep. So you rejoice, live in light of the news, but the news is not something you do. It's not a work, spiritual workout plan, not yep. <laughs> some technique, or let alone some spiritual gift you can earn. Yep, that's right. Okay, so let's get into the teach the doctrine section. And the first one we're looking at is 1 Corinthians 10. Verses 1 to 13, not a very long section, so I will go ahead and read this for us and then work through the LDS curriculum here. So this is from the English Standard Version, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. Paul writes, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and, in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took them as, they, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may may be able to endure it. And the subtitle for this section is God Provides a Way to Escape Temptation. How can you help class members discover powerful truths in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? One idea is to divide these verses into brief phrases, give each one to a different class member, and ask the class members, to restate the phrases in their own words. For example, what is another way to say God is faithful or tempted above that ye are able? You could then reread the verse using some of the class members' statements. Class members may be able to share experiences in which they found the promises in this verse to be true. What additional insights can we gain into these verses from Alma 13, 27 to 28? And then they say, of course, rather than dwelling on anyone's specific temptations, you might want to focus the discussion on temptations that are common to man, more just right. general temptations. Right. These we, we don't want to get are, too yeah. vulnerable about no, not vulnerable. Specific. And surely these extreme ones wouldn't be common. Yeah. Like it says. Yeah. Yeah. If you share any <laughs> of the any of the real struggles that you have, no. you, you'll be up on discipline in a quick minute. It, and uh, yeah, and notice yeah. this. This is this is. Not only a textbook example of reader response rather than authorial intent, mm-hmm. Paul's not the authority in this exercise. Yeah. The people of the class are. Yep. But it's also like textbook example of how to get away from what Paul is saying. Yep. You you fractionate everything, you take just brief phrases, and then you imbue it with your meaning, and then you discuss it, and that becomes the authority in the class. Yeah. In Sunday school, supposedly yeah. covering this chapter. Yeah. You you may have not caught it, but um, let's just state it how it is for the listener. What they're supposed to do in their class this week is rewrite the scripture yes. to be what they want it to say. Yep. I mean, that's that's precisely the exercise. Yep. And, uh, and, and just to be clear on why I'm saying it that way, because some, some people might say, well, you know, they're just applying the scripture or something like that. No, no, no. They're not studying the words that are there. No. They're just immediately jumping to, well, rewrite it in a way that's helpful for you or that it's relatable to you or whatever it may be. And the, the purpose of Bible study shouldn't be to do these exercises that kind of center you into the middle of the story, but to discover what is actually in the text, yeah. to, to study the words, um, right. because it's the words that are inspired from God. It's the apostolic authority of Paul that we are submitting to. And in addition to that, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words. And so we want to know the words to know what God says. And uh, again, we've covered that many times, but it's so critical to just see how central, again, these things are to their faith. Absolutely. And in the seminary manual, they continued this. And um, so that stopped at verse 13, but verse 14 is a short one. Uh, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's the verse. The exercise is literally this. Rewrite 1 Corinthians 10, 14, inserting your name after my dearly beloved 
and substitute a temptation you are facing for idolatry. Yep. And and given the what the Jewish Christian view of idolatry, this is extra ironic yep. since idolatry is worshiping anything but the one true God. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have monotheism, right, that would be you. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Just, it's, I don't know. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but also just notice how quickly it turns to moralism. You know, there, there, there's not really an emphasis that's placed on God. There's no. not much of an emphasis that's placed on, on Christ. Um, and it just immediately goes to how do we escape temptations? And so it, it runs into just the moral application very it's very horizontal as usual without focusing on the uh, the holiness of God the sins that are being committed against him um, and even like trying to take people back to some of the Old Testament context to understand what Paul is trying to do with that Old Testament context there so that right. we can better understand what he means when he's saying that uh, that God will not give us a temptation that uh, that will overtake us without giving us a way of escape right and or trying to make that work with the all of Pauline corpus as a whole, let alone the New Testament, let alone the entire Bible. So this is a subtle, we've, we have often emphasized the law gospel distinction that they don't have. Here's one even on law. They also completely deny that God could ever give a law we couldn't follow. Mm-hmm. And that, that's something that some might miss. So listen to this from Joseph B. Worthlin, who's one of their apostles in October 1989 that was born. Yeah. Um, he said this, um, and of course, this is in the lesson on this chapter. You will meet challenges, adversities, and temptations that seem to be more than you can bear. Be sure you understand that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist. He does not give you challenges you cannot surmount. He will not ask more than you can do, but may ask right up to your limit so that you can prove yourselves. See that? So, they, they also don't have no category for the use of the law to reveal sin, to reveal our need for the gospel. Yeah. And, and, and that Paul has a lot on this. Yep. You know, so you have to, you can't just take this verse and pit it against all those others. Yeah. Yep. And right. they do that. Yep. So um, anyway, that it's, uh, <laughs> and they end that class day, by the way, with a playbook, you know, to escape temptation. So it's all. Just, yeah, what you do, Yeah, it's all you do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, again, I think that point you made is just so pertinent and important. Verse 14 should not be left out, right? <laughs> Therefore, yeah, since God will, will uh, give you a, the moral wisdom and a way out to not sin and commit the sin of idolatry in particular, mm-hmm. therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run away from it. Yeah. That's what that's what all of chapter ten is leading up to is this command to go um, chase with all your heart, soul, mind, yeah. and strength after the one true God, right. and don't let your heart be taken up by idols, um, yeah. which ultimately are in many ways a worship of self. It's yeah. uh, it's turning the gods into your own image to make yourself feel empowered and important. Okay, um, let's move on to the next uh, section here. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. So yeah, they skip verse 14 and 15 there. And then uh, 10, uh, or uh, sorry, 11, 23 to 30. And these are 
texts having to do with the practices of the Lord's Supper within the church. And so they say here, the sacrament unifies us as members of Christ's church. And it says these verses could inspire discussion about how the sacrament can unify your ward in your efforts to become more like your Savior. You might want to begin by reading 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. So I'll just read this out loud for us real quick. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless is not... Uh, it is not a participation. Is it not? Sorry. Let me just, actually, I'm going to start with verse 14 just to get all the context here. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And that's all they give you. It doesn't go on from there um, as far as the reading that they're supposed to do. It says, explore what the word communion could mean in this context. How can partaking of the sacrament together help us feel more united? Yeah. How does Paul's counsel to let the man examine himself relate to this goal? Yeah. And notice too, on the word communion, they say, someone could look for a possible definition in a dictionary. What? Yeah. <laughs> so just, just, you know, Google it. The, uh, not, o- not what Oxford, the word meant at Oxford the time. English dictionary. Right, yeah, and w- possible, and not not what actually Paul meant. Yeah, yeah. So we've covered the sacrament before, yeah, uh, on here. So if, you, if you're interested to explore more of the LDS perspective on the sacrament, then I would say just go and, and check that out because we we probably won't sit on that a whole lot more. Unless you got right. anything else you want to say on this particular no, section here? Um, I I do think it's interesting that in the um. The seminary manual, the focus was on marriage, landing on verse 9 and 11. And, um, of course, uh, according to David Ridges, Paul clearly taught celestial marriage, eternal marriage. Um, okay. Um, and I just think this is something just to hit really quick. Let me read Russell Nelson here. Marriage is not only an exalting principle of the gospel, Exalting principle of the gospel, it is a divine commandment. Yeah. Um, and Eldon Tanner, he's also uh, LDS General Authority um, a while back. Significantly, God is mentioned in connection with this great partnership. We must never forget that one of woman's greatest privileges, blessings, and opportunities is to be a co-partner with God in bringing his spirit children into the world. And on the day they uh, covered this, at the very bottom, something caught my I and it was a video, but the I don't know the sitting picture of the video before you click on it and activate the video was Henry B. Eyring, who's currently of the first presidency, mm-hmm. and Pope Castro, I mean Pope Francis. And um that video was incredible, right? I had you watch it right oh, before yeah. this. Yeah, it's uh, shocking. Wow. What is going on in Rome? That's all I gotta say. I mean, I have to admire Eyring for his boldness in, sure. in the sense of you know, sitting in the Vatican and and testifying as a so-called apostle right next to the Pope that your eternal marriage is essential to everything for yeah. your future. Right. <laughs> I mean, the Pope obviously is a <laughs> celibate, not supposed to be married. Yeah. And Let's apparently hope so. he is the head of the church, right? So right. He, just weird. It is it's weird. weird. And, and I get that there's definitely uh, a Roman Catholic desire theological underpinning to the value of marriage socially it 
you know, but yeah, there is irony there. But in this video, right, uh, and Irene, of course, this notorious, it sounds like he's crying the whole time, and it's annoying, but he has this um, video where he, right, he's at some event, and he sees a woman, this is before he's married, and says, oh, I need this woman to, you know, complete me or whatever. And, um, you know, so very... You're it's, so romantic, Skyler. <laughs> You're such a a romantic. What I, I I mentioned this before. I don't know how edgy this is. I just think it's so funny, the double standards though, right? So because he's an LDS general authority, you know, he can say a story like this and everyone's like, oh, that's so cute and amazing. But Chad and Lori Daybell can tell a story like that. Like, oh, had this feeling in the celestial room of, oh yeah, I've been married to you in previous lives. That's crazy because they're not general authorities. It's a double standard. And I just, let's just call it the uh, Chad Daybell rule. Unless it's an LDS general authority, we're going to call it crazy. When they do it, it's okay, um, including plural marriage. But in this video, right, Irene, and this is what's so shocking to me about this being at the Vatican, is, of course, the ending, right? He, he says he's a apostolic witness. But listen to this, how husband and wife can create they have a transcendent power to create happiness for themselves mm-hmm. and their family in this life and in eternity. That is just, as we have covered several times this year, that is not what the scriptures teach. Yeah. And that's not what church tradition teaches either. I know, mm-hmm. I know tradition, you know, it's a mixed bag and whatever, and you're going to have the definitely um, some extremes in it. But n- Really? Yeah. Even even the ascetic monks, right? Do you think they think that they have a transcendent power to create happiness for themselves? I just think it's not God-centered at all, you know? And it stems right from this Mormon theology, and yet Francis is okay going right up and, you know, I guess having a picture taken with uh, this guy. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Anyway. So um, now David Ridges, I could not let this go by and then move on. His comment on... Uh, 11, 9, and 11 are that, and he cites DNC 132. Is this, I haven't been counting. Doesn't it seem like DNC 132 comes up every week? Hmm. That's interesting, yeah. It's in, it is the polygamy revelation. I, I want this to sink in for all the listeners. Doctrine and Covenants 132, in context, teaches polygamy. Yeah. It's, it taught polygamy. That's how it was interpreted. It's still there. It's still considered scripture. And of course, some would say it requires it, but at least teaches it as an eternal truth. Mm-hmm. And they cite it all the time. DNC 132, 19 and 20 also teaches this correct doctrine, namely that worthy husbands and wives sealed together for eternity are gods. Are gods. Mm-hmm. And serve together and are above all because all things are subject unto them and the angels are subject to them. Elder Bruce R. McConkie explained DNC 132.20 as follows. Exaltation grows out of the eternal union of a man and his wife. Of those whose marriage endures in eternity, the Lord says, then shall they be gods. DNC 132.20. That is, each of them, the man and the woman, will be a god. As such, they will rule over their dominions forever. And, of course, then on his comment in verse 11, this is where he says, Paul teaches eternal marriage, explaining that a man and a woman can remain married when they live with the Lord in his kingdom in heaven, which we covered Jesus saying the opposite. 
Yeah. So anyway, um, this quote was in the manual. And I, I hope the listeners are to the point where they can hear the subtext right beneath the, the surface layer here. Um, this is a very Mormon quote. I think it's worth quoting. M. Russell Ballard, he's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve today. Uh, this, is, this is my work in glory, Ensign, May 2013, which means it was the April conference. In our Heavenly Father's great priesthood-endowed plan. Mm-hmm. Priesthood-endowed plan. Men have the unique responsibility to administer the priesthood, but they are not the priesthood. Men and women have different but equally valued roles, period. Roles of what? In the priesthood? Just as a woman cannot conceive a child without a man, so a man cannot fully exercise the power of the priesthood to establish an eternal family without a woman. In the eternal perspective, both the procreative power and the priesthood power are shared by husband and wife. Catch that? Yeah. It's not just gods, it's goddesses. They Once again, they're... they're the LDS community, I think, is notoriously slippery on the use of the word God. Yeah, It's always the singular, just fill in plural. That's yeah. what they mean. Yeah. And they include women, which would be goddesses. But here, Ridge is all along, right, is saying God. Yeah, yeah. Now, if, if you listen to their stuff, though, that is meant to be heard, at least in their minds, by only their people— I feel like they are more open with the use of those words. I mean, at least yeah. the podcasts I listen to, you know, there's one that was very openly talking about Mother God. Yeah. You know, and, okay. and so I, and, and maybe that that's actually a popular movement because this particular podcast was somebody who I would think is younger and a little more on the progressive side of things, even within LTSism. Um, so I, I think that's going to become more popular because yeah. of you know, feminism and, yeah. you know, some, some of these social movements mm-hmm. that will f- really cause LDS people to want to pull from their doctrine, whatever it's going to be seemingly popular within the culture. Right. Women are gods too, you know, just, yep. it's men and women. Yeah. Um, and apparently in the priesthood in, endowed plan, having children is a priesthood power. Yeah. I think that's what Ballard is saying. Yep. It's inter- interesting too, just how they pull these sorts of ideas out of a text that has been <laughs> one of the more difficult ones in history to yeah. interpret. Yeah. And uh, especially, yeah. I do, I do think that there are elements of, uh, of, of, you know, important doctrine and distinctions that should be made in chapter eleven on uh, how we ought to view gender from a biblical perspective. But uh, just to take your view of, you know, things that are covered in Doctrine and Covenants and import that into the text and make the text say what aligns with your worldviews, again, just that classic view of eisegesis that we've seen to be so troublesome within an LDS interpretive method. And let's not forget the original sin. You shall be is God's. Yep. Yep. That's right. Okay, uh, now we're moving to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which uh, 12 to 14 cover uh, spiritual gifts. And so they uh, say in the next section, spiritual gifts are given to the benefit of all of Heavenly Father's children. And uh, just notice how, again, horizontal this is from the very beginning. Spiritual gifts are given to benefit 
all of Heavenly Father's children. And they say to help uh, class members see examples of how developing their spiritual gifts helps edify the church, consider inviting them to think of spiritual gifts uh, people in the scriptures had. For ideas, you could assign them to uh, search the scripture references that are given in additional resources. They could talk about uh, spiritual gifts that they see in each other. How are these people's uh, spiritual gifts a blessing to all of us? How can we use our spiritual gifts to bless others and edify the body of Christ or the church to help class members understand how to develop spiritual gifts, invite them to read these different scriptures. Of course, most of them are, are uh, um, in, in their standard words, Moroni, Doctrine, Doctrine and Covenants. Mm-hmm. What do these scriptures teach us about how to obtain spiritual gifts? how to obtain spiritual gifts, how does developing spiritual gifts make us more like Christ, invite class members to select a gift that they would like to obtain and seek the Lord's help in acquiring that gift. Okay, you get you get pretty far out from some evangelical interpretation, and it starts to come through there at the end there when you start to see that they apparently have ways that they can pick what gift they want and seek to obtain that particular gift according to their own will and their own desire. And uh, yeah, what what do you got on this yeah. section here, Skylar? Well, I think it's it's interesting to note that the shift in the general authority quotation, the use of this chapter over time in, in history, um, shows the emphasis of the leadership has shifted from the importance of spiritual gifts to that of just general revelation. And from these particular charismatic gifts, I think tongues is the most obvious where Brigham Young spoke in tongues. I mean, the early Mormon church was very charismatic to just talents, you know, and like playing piano is a spiritual gift. And um, going along with that theme of the use of scripture, right, they, um, you know, they, they start with this chapter, and then they use the scripture as a springboard to describe whatever they want as a, as a spiritual gift, you know? So, like, they have this talk by Marvin J. Ashton in uh, October 1987 General Conference, of just like, you know, the gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of caring, the gift, you know, it's just whatever they want is now a spiritual gift. So, once again, it's this, the scripture is not treated as the scripture. It's not like each of these gifts is isolated and studied in context to really carefully understand right. it's a springboard to describe whatever they feel is spiritual as spiritual yep now in the uh the lesson for the the day on this listen to this and it, especially in line with the justification talk of salvation as a gift yeah this is <laughs> this is the most gift sounding section we've encountered all year interesting Um, lesson is intended to help you recognize the spiritual gifts the Lord has given you, period. Wow, so it's something the Lord gives. Yeah, that contradicts what I just now said there. (laughs) No. (laughs) And then this is how, um, uh, you know, they have this spiritual gifts section. The Lord blesses all members of his church with spiritual gifts and abilities. Strive to discover, develop, and magnify these spiritual gifts to serve each seminary student and encourage the students to do likewise. Now, they're encouraged to bring a gift wrap package to class and set it in front as the object lesson, which is kind of funny. Um, yeah, do, yeah. Do, do those gift? Think of all the gospel talk, right? Where they're like, oh, no gift could come without strings. It's yeah. like, uh, yeah. Well, they have, okay, gift wrap package. Mm-hmm. And it's under the section receiving gifts. The Lord gives us spiritual gifts. Now, this is their definition of a spiritual gift. 
Spiritual gifts are blessings or abilities given by God to his children, which is everybody, through the power of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Now, remember, D&C, right, 130, um, where it says there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Yeah. So, actually, it's not a contradiction. If you know what they mean by blessing, if you know what they mean by gift. Um, Remember, even in the Romans 9's passage, just to bring it up again, where it says, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I hated, and where Paul makes the point, they had not done anything. They're in the womb. They would not be able to do anything to earn this, right? When it comes to election. And it, it says that, speaking of commentators, of course, us idiot Protestants, right, according to Richard Lloyd Anderson, they had not merited God's call from the point of view of earth life, but Latter-day Saints have the added perspective of the premortal existence and understanding God's choices. Yep. So earth works. That's really the issue, right? Um, <laughs> you know, election is without earthly works because calls are by definition prior to the task for which the call is made. And they bring in the premortal existence, and the sense is a prodigy is born, let's say Mozart, because in the premortal life or lives, depending on which form of Mormonism you're dealing with, he earned it. Mm-hmm. He developed that music ability and he brought it with him in this life. Yeah. So even gifts are not really gifts. Yep. And, um, and once again, just as this lesson, it, it kind of ends with this, you know, seek more gifts that you want and develop it and seek after them and how will this help you? you know, yeah. I think the thing that stood out to me in reading through this section is, again, just how horizontal it is, how they yeah. immediately go to the purpose of the gifts is to serve other people. It's to do the, these works that are going to help serve the body and serve other people. And so how do you develop your gifts? How do you develop your talents in order to ensure that you're doing the good works that you're supposed to do? And there's not an emphasis on the first couple of verses, which are the foundation of what Paul is trying to say the purpose of the gifts is. And so chapter 12 starts by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. In other words, you were having all sorts of spiritual experiences. You, you were having, you were talking this talk, you were doing these sorts of things. You were, you were led astray in these different practices by mute idols. And he says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Tom Schreiner in his book on spiritual gifts gives five truths about spiritual gifts. And the first truth that he gives is the centrality of the Lordship of Christ within spiritual gifts. Uh, Paul is highlighting that the whole purpose of this is to exalt Jesus as Lord. That's the point of the spiritual gifts. You're given a gift so that you can exalt Jesus Christ. And if you're not exalting Jesus Christ with your spiritual gift, if it's not primarily about the vertical before it becomes about the horizontal, you're missing the whole point. And you're probably participating in idolatry. I mean, you are. You are participating in idolatry if the fundamental point is not to glorify Jesus Christ and worship him as Lord. That's the point of the spiritual gifts. It's to manifest the the 
power of Jesus in the world so that people might come to worship him for who he is. And so Schreiner goes on to say, ecstatic spiritual experiences aren't the center of our faith. When God gives us powerful experiences of his presence, we praise him for drawing us near to for drawing near to us in such a gracious way. We should not and must not disregard such experiences with God at the same time. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord in our hearts and in our lives is far more important than any stunning experience with the Lord. Some people claim to have had amazing experiences, but they don't live under the Lordship of Christ in their everyday lives. A person may claim to have staggering gifts, but if they aren't living in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are failing in the most important area. Jesus warned us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Some, of course, uh, there are many significant exceptions in the charismatic world, have a reputation for wonderful gifts, but then word gets out that they have been living contrary to the gospel in a significant way for years. We should question whether someone is exercising spiritual gifts in a way that is truly helpful if there is a pattern of hidden and blatant sin in his or her life. In a world where subjective experience is often used as the measure of our spiritual lives, Paul brings us back to the objective baseline of Christian experience, the lordship of Jesus. So are your gifts for the purpose of bringing people to worship Jesus as Lord? And... What would have been a proper Christian understanding when you say Jesus is Lord? Yeah. Well, Paul lays that out in right. chapter eight. Chapter eight. And, and well, I mean, assume throughout, but yes, yeah. explicitly in chapter yeah, explicitly eight. Yeah, explicitly in chapter else. eight. <laughs> to say Jesus is Lord is to worship him as Yahweh, is to worship right. him as God, right. is to worship him as the one and only God and not as one among many gods. That would have been right. the pagan way of thinking about the pantheon of gods. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to say. Flee from, flee from that kind of idolatry. Jesus is Lord. And so you might have all these spiritual experiences, but if those experiences and those gifts, so-called gifts, spiritual gifts are not being used primarily fundamentally to exalt Jesus as Lord, they're not from the Lord and they're not giving glory to God. Even if they are real experiences that are happening, even if they are real spiritual feelings and emotions and and things like that, even if they are doing some level of good to your fellow man, if it's not for the purpose of worshiping Jesus as Lord, then you're ultimately just continuing to participate in a form of idolatry that is going to be damning and not saving. Right. Yeah. And I, I can't let it go by without mentioning uh, and this is the last thing I got on this section um, is they include scriptural examples of spiritual gifts right you mentioned them and one on the list is doctrine and covenants 6 5 10 through 12 and people have to realize especially if you look at DNC 6 along with DNC 8 that ironically this gift this spiritual gift to Oliver Cowdery in early Mormonism was a magic divining rod. <laughs> so yep. you don't have to take my word for it. Joseph Smith Papers Project is online. You can see it for yourself. But the rod of nature or the gift of Aaron, if you know, this was um, 
essential part, to quote uh, D. Michael Quinn, that this divining rod was almost as much of an essential part of paraphernalia of early Mormonism as the seer stone, which is, of course, also magical. Yep, yep. Okay, and then we get to the last section here, which is 1 Corinthians 13. The subtitle in the LDS curriculum is Charity is the Greatest Spiritual Gift. Uh, I'm sure you know 1 Corinthians 13 uh, listeners. Uh, If not, I'll just read it because it's such a wonderful passage. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even when I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, so they uh, don't use the word love, they use the word charity. Yeah. And they say, you might ask class members to silently ponder First Corinthians 13 and think of someone they know who's a good example of one or more aspects of charity that Paul mentioned. Some class members could describe the person they thought of and experience uh, yeah, the the person they thought of and an experience in which this person exemplified charity. You might list uh, even list parts of Paul's description on the board and invite class members to share ideas about what it means uh, that a person with charity suffereth long or is not easily provoked. How did the Savior exemplify these attributes of charity? What additional truths do we learn from Moroni seven forty six to forty eight that teach about charity? What you got on this one, Skyler? Yeah, well. It- and just right off the bat, um, charity is distinguished. It's a quirk of the KJV that, I mean, charity is love. Same Greek word, same everything. Um, but because the Book of Mormon further defines charity uh, as distinct from love, um, it, it defines it as the pure love of Christ and it endureth forever. It's Moroni 747. Uh, you'll notice LDS still talk of charity as almost like the highest expression of love or something like that. And so that's easy to miss um, from the outside. Now, they because they have that distinction, they'll talk about it differently as well. So uh, Dallin Oaks in his talk, The Challenge Become, will say that it's not an act. Charity is not an act, but a condition or state of being. Right? Charity is attained through a succession of acts that result in a conversion. Charity is something one becomes. Yeah. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, too, uh, in the manual, it says read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and then this Moroni passage and compare them. I just want to point out to people that this is one of the areas where it's so clear Joseph Smith is just copying the Bible and then adding something to it. Yeah. Um, now, often in a negative way. So, for example, in this passage, right, it says, 
Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart, and that ye may be filled with this love, that is charity, which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ. So if you're a true follower of Jesus, then you might earn this, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, Grant Palmer, just really quickly, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, he shows this as a clear example of Joseph Smith just taking wording, changing it a little bit. And he, he says, you know, we, we may assume that God reveals similar concepts to different people at different times and that such similarities in theme are to be expected. But the lingering question is whether such concepts could be expected to be found in identical sequences of ideas, phrases, and sentences. And I would just add, in a particular translation, they happen to be his own. Now, David Ridges, on this verse 12, with the face-to-face thing, this is his comment. Remember, he's the guy, the institute guy, and this is his verse-by-verse commentary. When we are face-to-face with God and have become gods, we will see who we really are, that we are like him. I am known, this is comment, by God in celestial exaltation. DNC 76. In other words, via true doctrine, you must see your potential and that you and I have the potential of becoming gods and of knowing all things, just as our God and Father knows us. And I would just say, God, our Heavenly Father. But where's Jesus in that? If they're separate beings and persons, where's Jesus in that? I guess not there. This, I guess, well, all right. Now, on faith, hope, and charity, his comment shows, I think, a theme that we've also been developing in the podcast throughout the year. This idea of natural, their kind of concept of cosmic natural law, Um, this is on verse 13. Faith, hope, and charity are a dynamic combination of cause and effect. Cause and effect. And might be summarized as follows. Faith in Jesus Christ leads to personal change and improvement. Thus, to hope for ourselves. Believe that. Hope for ourselves as far as exaltation is concerned. Not hope in Christ. Both faith and hope leads us to the essence of Christ-like living, which is charity toward all others. And then just throw this in really quick to show that he's not alone in this. Um, Bruce R. McConkie, he said, faith is the very power of God himself. A little different, but that's what he says. Faith is the very power of God himself. Hope is the assurance of eternal life and everlasting progression. Charity, the pure love of Christ. So you can see, once again, they the scripture is a springboard to define what they want to fit their system that has a logic to it. Mm-hmm. First Corinthians 8. Yeah, let's hit it. It's time. Let's hit it. All right, so let's cover what they did not cover, and in particular, a passage of Scripture that has been referred to as the Christian Shema. Um, let me just read the, uh, the chapter for us, and then I'm going to turn it over to you to make some comments here. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol is no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many, scare quote, gods and many, scare quote, lords. Mm -hmm. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Wow. 
Wow. Oh, that's wow. clear. That is really clear. Um, there's no God but one. Right. God, there's the only Father, one God. one. He's in that oneness. Yeah. Jesus, one in that oneness. Yep. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating uh, in an idol's temple... Uh, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat uh, food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their existence when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, so... Let's uh, let's talk through, especially those first you know six verses there that are so key in uh, understanding the nature of God. So, Skyler, yes, away. let me hit the Mormon interpretation first. Now, it is interesting in the history of uh, General Conference talks. Eight, chapter eight has only been cited um, as of two thousand fifteen, of course, thirty times. But those 30 times, here's an, here's an example of where a stat can be a little misleading, are pretty key. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Smith and Orson Pratt both comment specifically on this passage to defend the doctrine of the plurality of gods, right? Um, let me uh, just read some of this. Uh, first, Joseph Smith. Um, I'll put the full quote in the show notes, or at least where you can find it, since uh, we're running low in time. But it's just key to hear the confidence of Joseph Smith in what he says here. If Joseph Smith says, that, this is Smith speaking of himself, of course. If Joseph Smith says there are gods many and lords many, they cry away with him, crucify him. Mankind verily say that the scripture is with them. Search the scriptures. They testify the things that apostates would blaspheme. Paul, if Joseph Smith is a blasphemer, you are. I say there are gods many and lords many, but to us only one, and we are to be subject to that one. Once again, I would say, but that's three. That's not one. If the Godhead is three gods, yeah. we can do math, right, Smith? We can do math. Yep. If they're not one, they're three. Okay. Uh, some say, I do not interpret the same as you. They say it means the heathen God. Paul says there are gods many. It makes a plurality of gods anyhow. Without a revelation, I'm not going to give the God of heaven to them anyhow. You know, and I testify that Paul had no allusions to it. I have it from God. Get over it if you can. I have a witness of the Holy Ghost and testimony that Paul had no allusion to the heathen God in the text. It's pretty unbelievable. Pretty audacious um, to even have an awareness of the right interpretation and so boldly say, I don't care. I I have a different thing from God, so I'm going to change what it says. Yeah, totally. And... I found it interesting that in the BYU New Testament commentary, they even say, um, they, they quote Joseph Smith in saying, every time it says Elohim in the Old Testament, it ought to be plural. Every time. <laughs> yep. Every single time. Okay. Um, and they, their comment is, in making this bold assertion, the prophet went against the more popular and also scholarly views in his day and ours. I agree. Um, now, Orson Pratt, another apostle, I, I appreciated his comments. And this this quote is really helpful for the Christians listening as well, mm-hmm. because this is Orson Pratt fleshing out what that means. And you're going to hear this 
all the time when you talk to LDS. And we've mentioned it on the podcast. So this is in his, um, interestingly enough, this keeps popping up. This is in a talk he delivered August 29th, 1852, called Celestial Marriage, mm-hmm. where he defends polygamy. But anyway, uh, polygamy keeps popping up. It's yeah. kind of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. He says this. In one sense of the word, there are more gods than one. And in another sense, there is but one God. Okay. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit, but he tries to defend that saying, you know, scripture speak of more gods than one. He says, all these beings of, of course are one, the same as the father and the son are one. The son is called God. And so is the father. And in some places, the Holy ghost is called God. They are one in power, in wisdom, in knowledge, and in the inheritance of celestial glory. And I would just say, but wait, Orson Pratt, if a body is necessary for that, how is the Holy Ghost already at the same level? Who's unembodied? Anyway. And this is it. They act... Um, they are, sorry, they are one in their works. They possess all things and all things are subject to them. They act in unison. And if one has power to become the father of spirits, so has another. If one God can propagate his species and raise up spirits after his own image and likeness and call them his sons and daughters, so can all other gods that become like him do the same thing. Consequently, there will be many fathers And there will be many families and many sons and daughters. They will be the children of those glorified celestial beings that are counted worthy to be gods. Mm. And so here, uh, once again, he very clear that, you know, there is this kind of, well, for us, there is one. And that's what's interesting is, and even in the more academic commentary, and then we'll get to the real stuff. In the more academic commentary, this is what their comment on 8.6 and you just can't believe this is the scholar that they would defend this, but they do. Richard Draper and Michael Rhodes. There are indeed other gods and other lords, but for us, the inhabitants of this earth, the spirit children of our father and mother in heaven, you know, because Paul talks all the time about our mother in heaven, there is only one God whom we worship, our father. Wait, so, and one Lord, our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So that's two, right? Yeah. So why would you say... There is no God but one if he really means essentially two. Yep, yep. I mean, it's just... Doesn't make sense. If, if the, and once again, is, that, is this not uh, inadvertently been the theme of today? Do scriptures mean anything? Yeah. If the word one can literally mean infinite, yep. words have no meaning. Yep, that's the point, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, this is not new with Derrida. Forget mm-hmm. the postmodernists. It was with Joseph Smith already. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> he was the postmodern prophet of the 19th century. Yeah. So to show, um, maybe I'll just put this in in the show notes, but David Ridges doubles down as well and says, this verse is about us becoming gods. <laughs> right. Hero Israel. You can become gods, right? Mm. Hero Israel. That's what Deuteronomy 6 says. No, it's the Shema. That's why this is key. This is the distinctive prayer of monotheism, that there is only one God. And notice that word one, which is from the Shema, is God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And when they say Lord, call upon the Lord, they mean Yahweh. Yep. So just notice this. like, And this is in a context in which he's distinguishing it from the idols, distinguishing it 
from these other gods that are all over the ancient world, um, and especially in Corinth. Um, and it's I, I really like this book by Larry Hurtado, Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. But he, he just tries to emphasize so much that this prayer shows, A, it comes right out of a Jewish matrix of religion. Mm-hmm. Christianity, once again, we often talk about Judaism and then Christianity being like a cult of it or, you know, no, 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 no. Judaism and Christianity both come out of the Old Testament. Um, one, the Messiah has come, the practicing part of the other, still waiting for, for it. But the idea of monotheism is a non-negotiable for both. The question is, on the other hand, that this Messiah, this rabbi from Nazareth, is identified with the one God. And you can see it here. Notice, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Creation. We're not waiting for John 1.1. It's already here. And notice, Paul's not debating this. He's just referencing it. This is the foundational prayer of the Old Testament. He puts Jesus in it, and he doesn't have to debate it. Yeah, and and this is just a principle of religion generally. If it's already at the level of the song, already at the level of worship, the thinking has been done. You know, right? The debate is over the law. It's over, you know definitely things to debate. This is not one of them, and clearly, this is Christ within the Shema that they are were to devote themselves exclusively to the one God of the Jewish Scriptures. And this one in one's, includes the man Jesus. So um, this is Hurtado's um, comment about the dyadic nature of this earliest Christian belief. It combines the exclusivity of Paul's Jewish tradition with the duality that distinguished earliest Christian faith. Both God, the Father, and Jesus are given an exclusivity in the repetition of an emphatic one the one of the Shema, with each of them. And likewise, there is universality ascribed to each, along with the distinction between them. And we distinguish them. We distinguish the persons. All things are from and for God, and all things are through Jesus. God is the author, source, and ultimate purpose of all things, and Jesus is the unique agent of creation and redemption of all things. This is Jesus is linked with God uniquely. And by that, we mean uniquely. We don't mean uniquely, but it could be anybody. <laughs> we, we can let words mean what they mean. Yep. And, and so when it says flee from idolatry, you cannot see this apart from this. <laughs> you cannot see all this other stuff, spiritual gifts, apart from the monotheism that's a non-negotiable as wrapped around the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Another book I really like is Ken Bailey's Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes. And once again, showing even the Arabic commentaries, uh, they didn't miss this. They saw clearly this is the Shema and Jesus within it. And he says right here, especially in the point here, he actually thinks that there's points of contact also with Psalm 95, 3 through 5, and that the one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, of course, once again, the Lord being the Lord, the Lord of Joel 2, for example. That one God replaces and abolishes all of the so-called gods and lords that stare down at the Corinthian every time they go to the markets in the town square. And, um, and you know, clearly, if he is the agent of creation, as we see here, that means he's preexistent. And by the way, we weren't. Yeah. So, anyway, I, I could say way more, but it's just so key to get this. It's so key to see right here 
what a blessing this is yep. when dealing with all kinds of radical liberalism that want to ignore this and pretend you have a human Jesus and Mark that develops into the God of John. Yeah. And that's just silly. It, honestly, yeah. it's, it's silly, oh, especially yeah. given a text like this. Yep, definitely. Uh, that was good. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just close this out by reading the Athanasius, Athanasian Creed. Please. Because we're about out of time here. And yeah. I, here's why I want to close particularly with a creed and this creed today, because I want you to see that when we say that we are creedal Christians, what we really are saying is we're biblical Christians. We just interpret the scriptures the way that the church has rightly interpreted the scriptures all along. And that's what we believe the creeds do at their best is they rightly articulate the, the teaching that is in scripture. And so what you just walked through there in first Corinthians eight is clearer than day um, now, it might be uh, deeper than we're able to swim um, and, and feel daunting in the sense of being able to grasp onto it with our finite minds. There, there is mystery in the Trinity because God is incomprehensible, but you've got to take the words for what they say, and you've got to take it within the context of Judaism and the way that you just so well explained, and that's what those who are writing these creeds were doing. They were taking the teaching of scripture and seeking to rightly understand it to make these things clear for the church as time progressed on. And uh, the church has always been a confessional church. You know, in the early church days, every local church had a creed that taught uh, the essentials of the faith, and they would recite that creed together every Lord's Day whenever they would come together. And, uh, and the reason was because these things were settled. Like you yeah. said, the, these essential matters were, were not up for debate. Right. And so to be a Christian, you had to affirm these things. Otherwise you, you had, you should have no confidence in your salvation. So let's listen to how Athanasius puts this. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Of course, the Catholic faith is a universal faith, the faith that all Christians believe. Right. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic church. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding nor neither confounding their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. Yes. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. 
Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father is neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. Who He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. The Athanasian Creed goes on from there, but I'm going to stop it there for the sake of time. Go read it yourself. This is the God you must worship if you want to have any assurance of salvation. So if you're not worshiping him, please turn and worship him today. Next week, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 14 to 16. God is not the author of confusion, but peace. Looking forward to that one.